All right, so for this podcast, I am joined by two very smart individuals who are involved with faculty development, particularly online faculty development here at Penn State, uh, Andrew Totosko and Larry Bodges. Um, and I'll keep the introduction short because this podcast went along uh, a bit long be just because we had a great conversation. Um, and I think that faculty development in its own right is um, an interesting topic and there's a lot to say there, um, particularly the evolution of the field and um, sort of how it fits into the modern university. Uh, and we also talk a bit about how faculty development and learning design functions relate to each other and play off of each other. Um, so I think that there's a lot here that that's of interest and in, in, um, as you as one develops a career in learning design, uh, it's useful to know this faculty development relationship and, and get to know people like Drew and Larry. Um, and, uh, and I think that the students benefit from it and faculty benefit from it. Um, and I think you can tell that, the, that, bo that both of these individuals are, um, have, have a wealth of knowledge about learning theory um, as well as the, the faculty role and uh, you know, methodologies for improving teaching effectiveness. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, so today I am joined by Andrew Totosko and Larry Bodges, uh, who are going to be talking to me a little bit about faculty development. So why don't we start by uh, letting these guys introduce themselves, and, and maybe if you could also talk about what specifically your role is at Penn State, um, and then you know any kind of relevant bits of professional background, just to help us understand how kind of one um, kind of navigates into a position like this. Uh, sure. I'm Larry Bodges, and I'm a director of uh, online faculty development at Penn State World Campus. Um, uh, I'm also on the educational leadership faculty here at the College of Education, um, and I teach in the online uh, MED program. Uh, before I got into higher ed, I was, um, I was in K-12 education, both as a classroom teacher and as a school principal. Very interesting. I'm Andrew Tatusco. I'm the assistant director for online faculty development, and I work with Larry. Uh, so what I've learned in, in the many years I've been doing this type of work since about the year 2000, and what I've learned is that many people who came into this profession, especially early on, came from areas that you just wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. My academic area was in theology and religious studies, oh. and when I was a graduate student, I was helping them learn how to use a highly sophisticated, quote, smart classroom. And it was smart because it had technology. And in 1999, that was a real thing. It was novel and it was expensive, but nobody knew how to use it. And this was in the Center for Continuing Education at Princeton Seminary. So I, I sort of had the task of being like the tech guy, right, of, of helping the, the visiting scholars learn how to use the system for their workshops and presentations. And I kind of spun that off into a career. At the, it started off, I was called a faculty consultant. Mm. And then midway through my position, this was at Seton Hall University, I became an instructional designer. And at the time, nobody knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. They and still it, don't. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, it, was, it was a circuitous route. And then I kind of just sort of evolved into this changing position of supporting faculty, integrating technology into the curriculum, developing pedagogies to help mm -hmm. faculty and then to support them. 
And my main role with, with faculty development now is to help design the curriculum and the framework for our online faculty development course offerings that are offered fully online. So a quick follow-up question I always have for that professional background and sort of what leads you up there, because particularly with instructional designers, often their backgrounds are not, I went to grad school for instructional design. Mm -hmm. It's like I, I worked for a museum or I was a K-12 teacher or something like that. Um, are, 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 would you say for, if you, as you go to, go to faculty development conferences or talk to your colleagues, is, is that background typical? Both of your backgrounds typical, sort of kind of coming at it sideways? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think my background coming as an academic is a little unusual mm -hmm. because, um, you know, both Drew and I have terminal degrees in, in different um, areas, but it's, I find that sort of unusual where um, you have someone who's been in the academic field all the way along in the administrative field and also um, in teaching. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's... That that can be unusual, particularly when there's, um, you know, and we can get to the idea of what is faculty development yeah. to begin with. But in terms of the more formalized faculty development offices, um, I think you find f folks who are doing at the at the lower levels of of um, faculty development really varied things, and only at the sort of the top and the administrative part do you see the kind of mm -hmm. the academic PhD folks. Are, are there academic programs in faculty development? Is there is that no? No, and and I think that faculty development as as a thing really starts with I've seen it happen as instructional design that the history of that in libraries um, I've seen men, much of much of that work start in libraries yeah. before it splinters out into other parts of the organization. But faculty development as a thing, I've only seen it in the disciplinary areas like it maybe at the college level but but really at the discipline level where they're doing specific mm -hmm. faculty development things um, and then something like the the Schreier Institute at Penn State which is a, a separate separately funded institute that works with the faculty sort of from the outside looking in but but they still are have a have a different kind of relationship with the academic departments mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that that's something that that I've seen in, in the past 20 years where there's two competing um, organizational um, structures. One is sort of the decentralized model for these things where we have mm -hmm. faculty development and faculty support spread out throughout the, the university. And then the other model that you typically see, I think, at smaller colleges, medium-sized colleges, universities, is things more consolidated. Mm -hmm. And I, I've worked in both kinds of structures. And both have different institutional sagas that inform the way yeah. that they're designed. Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is, which is to sort of define what faculty development mm -hmm. is from a high-level standpoint, <clears throat> and then and 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 what what its purpose is. Why do we have such a function at, at institutions? Yeah, you know, it's changed because 60, 70 years ago, faculty development was really at the core of organizational and institutional change. Hmm. In fact, if you go to the, the POD network, which is the national sort of association of faculty developers or, or educational developers now, POD is, um, um, I forget what the P stands for, but it's organizational development. So uh -huh. back then it was centralized, meaning that it was the faculty that was going to drive change yes. and innovation. And, um, 
And so, you know, over over time, I think the political positioning of faculty development has changed now to be supporting improved instruction. You know, so. Um, and I think that I think it, I think it goes back and forth. I think we may be coming into a time, as Drew was saying, the sort of the the centers for teaching and learning, or they call the CEDLs by mm -hmm. by the um, acronym. Mm -hmm. um, those are now, I think, in some institutions, really consolidating all of the faculty development and once again driving organizational change in terms of how courses are being taught, what kinds of technologies faculty are using, how are faculty learning to or and, and enhancing and improving their instruction over time mm -hmm. right so i think that the whole concept of faculty development as an as an official institutional thing has been morphing back and forth yeah but i also know that there's for faculty development it's also an action it's an activity my first experience with faculty development was when i was sitting down having to write an online course and had an instructional designer oh, teaching oh yeah. me right. like Larry, no, you can't have 10 pages of yeah. text. You need to break it up. Why do I need to break it up? I don't break it up. You know. mm -hmm. So I was being taught by an instructional designer. I was, so that was my first encounter with faculty development. And I understood that in terms of the activity of faculty development, instructional designers are often on the front lines of that because those are the ones who are directly working with the faculty when they're trying to... Um, transition a course from face-to-face um, -to, -face to online. And what I've, what I've seen is sort of um, the way that we talk about faculty development has been changed a lot by how we implement different internet-driven technologies yeah. on our campuses and the way that data is handled yeah. and, and how faculty um, manipulate that data with course content, with their assessment um, tools and things like that from a from a sheerly pedagogical side, right? It's faculty development from teaching and how technology is implemented from the administrative side of the university. Um, that, that, that influence has shaped what faculty development means from that side. Yeah. But the other side of faculty development has to do with things that don't really have to do with teaching at all. And that's teaching, that's your promotion, um, mm -hmm. that's your, your research activities, mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. how, how to, and how to sort of find that balance and fine-tune that balance between this is what my obligations are to my professional organization, to my, to my research, and to my career path from that angle, and this is what my institutional obligations are, which have to do with teaching, and finding a way to hold those two elements of your life as a faculty member yeah, in right. balance. Because yeah. they're often at conflict, especially at a Research One institution that, that's, that, that pays a lot of attention to teaching it's important, it's part of your promotion, but what we're really gonna look at is your research. And, but you're gonna spend an awful lot of time grading student work. Yeah. So it's, it's how can I find that balance and what are the tools that enable me to, to do that more effectively? And I think that's where you see two, two drivers of faculty development that are often in conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. I, as somebody who oversees a learning design group, um, and, and, I, and I think a lot about that, uh, that sort of evolution of, of that space and, and the emergence of this class of people within an institution that um, where there might, it might have been like sort of an activity of faculty, like, like at learning technologies and um, kind of staying up to date in the field and, and doing some of these administrative things. And then as they become 
changing too fast to keep up with or uh, as they as they get uh, increasingly more complex. It's just not in terms of that balance of responsibility of, of what a faculty should be, especially in an R1 institution like ours, should be paying attention to those constantly keeping up with changing technologies is not what people these, these people should be spending their time on. So do you think that something like faculty development and instructional design, I guess, sort of emerged as a way to say we need we need dedicated people to be doing this kind of stuff. Faculty can't just do it on their own. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things involved in that. One is there's just no very little transfer from face-to-face teaching to online. So you, so you have to, I mean, our assumption is that you have to be taught how to teach online. It, it's not intuitive. It's not natural. So you need at least an online faculty development. You need a you need a um, a training platform to support faculty in learning to do this new thing because it's brand new. Mm-hmm. You know, they they don't have experience. They've never been. You know, they don't get training to teach in any way usually. Right. I think the other thing is that you know Drew was talking about sort of the broader area of faculty affairs like so a vice provost of faculty affairs at a university like Penn State will do faculty will oversee faculty development mm-hmm. but also promotion and tenure and all those other kinds mm-hmm. of things in the online faculty development area we kind of don't need to do that we're we're tasked um, in collaboration with instructional designers to just focus on what's the course environment What's the content there, and what's the pedagogy look like, and what's the online pedagogy look like? So when we talk about online faculty development, and and with other units throughout the you know other universities, we're mostly talking about pedagogy, and what's the what are the behaviors and experiences and learnings and skills and competencies of that online instructor. So we can re, we have the luxury of really focusing in on instruction and experience of teaching and learning rather than sort of all that other administrative stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think something that's happened related to the, this, um, I don't want to call it new anymore, but mm-hmm. it's continually changing, as you said, but this technology, something that I've, I've seen happen over and over and over again is that when you integrate technology into an existing set of teaching practices, it reveals a lot of the gaps that were already there um, and it makes them more apparent. And, and it, you can't really hide from them at that mm-hmm. point. If, if you've never used right. rubrics, if you've never done, mm-hmm. done effective goal-directed feedback for your students, if you've never had timely feedback, once you throw all that stuff into a system with a set of algorithms that students can then track for themselves in real time, yeah. you'll see what those gaps are really quickly. So instead of the students whispering to each other, hey, have you gotten your grades yet? Everybody knows that you haven't gotten your grades yet or your feedback from the faculty yet when you put it in one of these online environments. Yeah, so it, it exacerbates those. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it makes all the, all the tendencies that you have in a, in a face-to-face environment where I think you can kind of hide some of those areas where you might be a little bit less prepared for, mm-hmm. a little bit less competent in. Feedback is, I think, probably the strongest example of that. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I've, heard, I've heard it from students over and over and over again. My professor just isn't giving me timely feedback, so it makes... Yeah. assignments difficult to complete. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do because they have a certain set of expectations that have been built over time for a more um, 
event-driven kind of feedback yeah. situation. You're sitting in a classroom and they're asking you questions and you're responding to them. It's sort of natural to have that dynamic. Right. Or, yeah. or the other thing is, is that faculty who are, who are giving lectures in front of a class, they, they've formed a certain belief system, sort of a schema about themselves, about how great they are. Mm-hmm giving lectures in front of students. And, and, and I hear it in our courses from, from faculty when we talk to them about transferring face-to-face learning to an online environment. And what they will often say is, and I've heard this not just here, but everywhere, is when I'm in a face-to-face course, um, I have eye contact with students so I can see if they get it. And I challenge that because I think it's a flawed assumption. What does get it mean, and how do you know that that's happening? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can you know that learning is happening for that student just by looking at them and their reactions to your brilliant mm-hmm. performance? Right. Um, and, and the other fact is that lecturing, too, is a competency. That's a skill that you have to develop over time. And if you haven't been trained in that, you're probably not a very good lecturer, but you believe you are. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out where these beliefs and these assumptions can be challenged in order to make improvements that I think the technology reveals where, where these improvements can be made. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a clear need for faculty development, particularly now, particularly in the online space. How do we get faculty to do this? And maybe from the, from the context of Penn State, but also maybe other institutions that you're aware of, are, how is this incentivized? Are, fa- are faculty often required to do this, or is it sort of the best faculty that are already interested in improving are coming to you? I mean, I think in the in the last 20 years, I think a lot of faculty online faculty development um, units in different universities throughout the throughout the United States, um, if they've been around even 10 years, I think they I think we all have experienced sort of a similar arc where we start years ago paying faculty to take the courses. And there are still some units uh, in other universities that we collaborate with who ask us, so do you pay your faculty? Because they're just getting started yeah. with this, right? Well, we pay our faculty, whatever, and we say, yeah, we stopped doing that years ago. One, because our numbers are so big that we couldn't, we right, couldn't, we couldn't, it, yeah. and the, the incentive would not be enough money. Um, a couple of things have, have incentivized faculty, and one of them is uh, sort of this top-down um, requirement, either at the program level or at the college level, that someone's saying, if you want to teach for this particular program or this particular college, you need to go get that training, or you need to get our training, meaning their own personal college-level training. But there's a requirement for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we've seen a lot more... Um, just folks coming to us because if they're going if they're going to teach online, they have to do this. They have to check off the box. Mm-hmm. There's also this U.S. News and World Report pressure, which mm-hmm. is um, every online program has to demonstrate or verify that they have that they do some sort of training mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. So I think it's you know, and then there's one more factor that's really kind of new, and at least at Penn State, and that is the you know, the, um, the faculty ranks have, have changed. So now you can be like a teaching professor, right? right? right. Or you can, you can be an assistant teaching professor, an associate teaching professor. So there's, there's a pathway for you to, for promotion. And on a teaching basis, that pathway often is show some professional development 
and show that you're taking the courses. So Drew and I were looking at our certificate completions over the last four years. We've had certificates a little bit longer than that, but about four years ago we started having more than one certificate. We offer six now. And in the last four years, we've had 1,300 certificate completions. Now, a certificate's two or three or four courses bundled. So people are... Significant effort. Right. And there's only one college that's that's actually financially incentivizing the completion of certificates. The rest are, hey, I want this on my resume. I want this because I want to be a good teacher. I want to be effective in the classroom. I want to have good SRTEs. all of those things. So I think the incentives have now are balancing out between what are the what are the top down mandated ones right. and then what are the internal ones. Yeah. And as anybody who studies learning knows, intrinsic motivation is much stronger than any kinds of Absolutely. extrinsic motivation. So yep. but it is in, in reality it's a mix of those two things. Yeah. Well, yeah. particularly particularly because it's it's always do it's always the right thing to take a, a faculty development one of our courses for instance, but it does take time. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, Few hours, several hours a week over five weeks, so that, you know, that's a that's a decision that a faculty makes to add on to their workload in order to become a better teacher. Yeah. Um, so, so let's kind of dig into a typical faculty development experience, and I'm kind of wondering as you're designing these things, what are some of the skill sets that you're thinking about that faculty need to to develop over their career if they want to be successful. Uh, well, let's let's say particularly for you for you guys, it's you're focusing on on teaching online. So, what are some of the skill sets that you're focusing on um, developing with faculty for teaching online? Um, several years ago, this this was uh, with the faculty development staff that was um, transitioning out as Larry and I sort of came in. I came in in 2011. Larry came in in 2013. I think mm-hmm. you you became director. They did a study called The Competencies of Online Teaching Success, and what they did, and what I've seen in the other research around this area of, of what, are the, what are the faculty competencies or skills for online teaching, they did most of it based on surveys, based on perceptions and beliefs of faculty according to, like, what, what skills do you think faculty need to be successful online teachers? And they, they came out with a, with a few a few different skill sets. You have to be... Um, fluent in the technology that's delivering the course. You need to have um, effective feedback skills that are timely and appropriate and goal-directed. You need to be um, visually present within the course context. If if it's not just feedback, then it's um, in discussions because discussions drive a lot of the um, social aspects of a course. Um, Things like that. It's it's a certain set of uh, technical skills that you need to have just to manage manage your course. And most of those overlap with just sound pedagogical skills. Mm-hmm. Um, feedback, I, I, this is like the third time I mentioned it because it's a significant gap, I think, that most students have with all instruction. And in online, it's even worse. Um, so it's, it's the, the mechanisms of teaching, sort of the, the, the management of it. That's what a lot of those studies um, discovered. What, what we then did was we, we took... That, that initial study, it was like 60, 62 competencies, and wow. then they clustered them down to 30. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they found some redundancies and then, then found them in terms of administrative skill, technical skill, and then online pedagogy presence type things, um, which were like three clustered groups. And that's basically where we got the um, sort of the backbone of our curriculum, which is OL2000, and that's 
kind of a, um, a, a basics course in online teaching for faculty. Here, here are your essential skills. It's called the Essentials of Online Teaching. Mm-hmm. But what, what we did was we looked at that and, and thought of other things that were, that were part of this online teaching experience and wondered what would this look like in, in a more competency-based um, um, educational experience. So as opposed to you take a course that lasts four weeks and then you're done, what does this look like if we map out a competency-based education system over a, fa- over a career span? Once we started to generate questions about that, um, what I did was I, I looked at the research in, in professional competency at, from several different disciplines, and I landed on this, this model um, from the interstate it's the interstate teachers. Um, oh God, I, I forget the I forget the rest of the acronym, but it's called okay. Intask. Okay, okay. Yeah. and um, it's a K through twelve model that they developed on effective teaching practice, and it's it breaks it out into um, three core competency sets that we then mapped our courses to. And but the thing that these that this added that we didn't didn't have was. If you are, if you are, let's say that you're, let's just go back to feedback again. Hey, why not? Um, <laughs> if you're looking at effective feedback skills, what does it mean to go from somebody who's just barely getting by with like the basics? This is what, this is like the minimum requirements for effective feedback. And what does it look like on the other end of that spectrum to like, this is somebody who gives excellent feedback and can show um, improved grades as a result of that improvement in their teaching. That's what this whole system did. It gives progressions for each of these competency areas. Mm-hmm. And we sort of mapped our curriculum to that. And that's where we separated our, our certificates out into these different competency areas where we can then start to ask the question, how do faculty improve over time mm-hmm. through, a, through a reiterative process to get better at these skills? Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's what we've sort of been building out for about the past four years. You know, it's an interesting kind of follow-up to to, to your comment, and that's, um, like, instructional designers are pretty good at knowing, like, learning theory, right? right? You, you sort of have to know what are you going to put into a course space, why are you going to put it in there? Mm-hmm. Um, and what we encounter when faculty are taking our courses is this is probably their very first formal training mm-hmm. in any kind of teaching. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, <laughs> if we... If we have, we have an assignment um, around discussion questions, right? So write two good discussion questions. You would not, you would not be surprised to know the faculty have difficulty yeah. writing questions that are going to generate discussions. And the reason they do that is because they've, they don't understand or they've never been taught about the alignment of learning outcomes what assignment are you going to give for them to perform that learning outcome and demonstrate it? And what assessment are you going to use in order mm-hmm. to know whether that student performed or demonstrated that learning outcome successfully? So that very tight alignment. So you'll get discussion questions that are listing questions or um, give me the you know top five reasons for whatever, but there's no engagement, right? So in addition to sort of the online teaching competencies, we're throwing in learning theory. Mm-hmm. Because even even if a faculty who's, for instance, working on a world campus course with a very competent world campus instructional designer from your shop, um, that faculty may not get that kind of training and teaching and exposure to things like 
teaching, learning theory, you know, what's the connection between assessments and assignments. Now, they may not need that for that particular course because the instructional designer will say, let's work on that discussion question because I don't think you're going to get a lot of stuff going on in discussion forum yeah. for there. Yeah. But the more we send out faculty who've at least been exposed to that, and we have them do a, uh, we have them do a, a deliverable to demonstrate their competency on writing discussion questions. That's sort of another role that we play. It's around pedagogy. They may or may not necessarily need that for the task ahead of them to, to work with an instructional designer, but at least we're now sending out faculty who might know something like yeah. there's a connection between assessment and an assignment. Yeah, and this makes me think of, of something we just talked about earlier, which was sort of the, the, the issues that are exacerbated in the, specifically in the online environment. I'm kind of wondering if you are, have a history of somewhat successfully teaching in a physical classroom, you're, the classroom equivalent of asking good discussion questions is standing in front of the class and asking the students questions. And presumably there's some dynamic where the students look at you like they have no idea what you just asked, mm -hmm. or if it's irrelevant, they, they sort of, there's body language that they give you and you can say, well, what I meant was this. Is that is that part of the like problem? It's somebody who comes from being a successful resident teacher, teacher to go into the online space, just like assuming that, oh, well, I'll just do it like I did in the classroom environment. But then when I ask that poorly worded or irrelevant question in that environment, it just becomes much more apparent that mm -hmm. I was way off base with the way that I asked that. Yeah, with this, I mean, it doesn't even work that way. I'd, I'd actually like to see that kind of thing happen. Mm -hmm. Like what, what, what would the question, I have to prompt faculty in many times to offer what, what kind of question would you ask if you had your students sitting around in a circle? They're not doing that online the first shot. What they're doing uh -huh. is doing what kind of what Larry was saying, is they will say, um, please read the following two articles. Offer a summary of both. Uh -huh. That's in the context of a discussion. And what I'll ask them is, why do you want them to, why is that a discussion question? Yeah. Like what kind of discussion? Mm -hmm. Would you do that face-to-face -face with a group of four students? Mm -hmm. Everybody offer a summary of that article, a presentation. Right. Oh, my gosh, that would be the worst class <laughs> they've ever experienced. And it would right. be for you, too. It mm -hmm. would be miserable. So let's dial that back a little bit and ask the fundamental question, why this assignment for this particular purpose? Why are you doing this? And it's, it's a kind of mindfulness thing that I want them to do. And this right. is in my feedback to them in these courses of, of let's, let's pull back a little bit and let's be intentional about what we're asking our students to do. And what, what kinds, what, what are we expecting to observe that's related to the, to the objective that we're getting after with this particular assignment at this point in the course? Mm -hmm. Like, let's figure out why we're doing these things. And if we don't know why we're doing them, and I tell them this all the time, if you don't know why you're doing this and you just think you should, please don't do it. Like, like you need to have a, some kind of a rational argument in place for why you're doing this, this particular assignment. That's the type of exercise that um, few people who come into university teaching get to have. It's, it's a different kind of interaction, a different kind of relationship with their own practice that, that we can provide them. It's like, here's what, the, here's what the learning theory says. Okay, now show me what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And then we get to give them feedback on that. And, and most of the time, it's, it's sort of like midway through an OL2000 course or something like that. You'll see them go, oh, okay, let me try it again. And it's that reiterative process in the context of the course where they can try to apply this stuff 
and we can give feedback where things happen. But also to illustrate the the difference between the face-to-face and online is the, the example that you were giving, mm-hmm. Chris, about um, the person asking questions. There's a lot going on there. One is, I mean, asking questions for dis- live discussion face-to-face is an art. Most people don't do it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, there's this sense of um, they're asking questions. They're like, guess what's on my mind questions, right? Okay, those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. Or there's this as, as, you know, this idea of this illusion that we have a discussion going when those students could be completely yeah. disingenuous with you. Yep. But, you know, or what's, you know, and, you know, what qualifies for a successful discussion in a class of 30 that five people are talking right. and 25 are being quiet? Yeah, that doesn't work yeah. online. Yeah, <laughs> all thirty have to talk. All thirty uh-huh. have to be engaged. So, what kind of, what kind of discussion question is going to engage thirty people with themselves and and each and, and each other? Um, and of course, the other dynamic of that is that question often has to be written a semester before the class even begins, right? Right. So you have yeah. to have all that in place, and yeah. so you, you better have thought this through. So yeah. it's that intentionality, it's that front loading, the front loading of thought and intentionality in in putting together an online course. And I think this is why you you'll often have people who are transitioning onto online, and then if they're going back to face to face, they'll they'll say, "Oh, yeah. I, my online <laughs> teaching made me so much a better." Yeah face-to-face teacher uh, yeah. and it's because That's of wonderful. those I have to think about mm-hmm. like what am I asking what's the learning outcome am I doing the right assessment is a discussion question the right tool to use yeah should it be a little presentation a video presentation this yeah. is like what's yeah what am I trying to get at what tools am I using to to, yeah. to elicit that I, I can imagine that 50-minute classroom session after having taught online being much more organized and structured and mm-hmm. And, and having sort of a thoughtful arc to it in a way that probably sitting there and lecturing for 50 minutes. Well, and had. I think what people say is is when you go back and teach that 50-minute live course, it's less performance and it's more instruction. Yeah. Right? Because the, the tendency is to perform as the, as the, as the instructor or the professor. So this, uh, I had a question sort of about the, the relationship between faculty development and learning designers, and, and you've talked about that a little bit. Um, I, I'm wondering from, uh, you know, both the learning designer and the faculty development people, um, kind of Im- improving and, and learning over time. Do you, do you talk to learning designers and they say, I'm, as I'm designing these courses, I wish that we, the faculty were doing more of this, or I, I'm, I'm trying to design these things into my courses and bring the faculty along to say, you need to write better discussion questions and they're not understanding it so can we do something with faculty development like is there an interplay in the development of how all this stuff works between those two groups oh yeah i mean it's happening right now with with our um accessibility course um that anita collier is Mm -hmm. writing the content for and an instructional designer is working with her to redesign that um and the the interplay there is is that these are the sorts of things that faculty need as far as is is um, understanding what to do with um, um, scenarios in their teaching, where students need certain accommodations to be met based on certain criteria. 
Um, and what, what, what the learning designer often has access to that we don't in our faculty development unit is like the full suite of tools mm -hmm. and ideas that are available. Like, mm -hmm. like we don't know fully what all of the what what our technology suite right. can do in the context of an online learning environment. Learning designers do know that. Mm -hmm. So so there there's a different angle coming in to to how to design the content that um, that provides a, a, a different arc. Mm -hmm. um, where I think I think I think where we specialize in 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 how do you as an online instructor form more engaging relationships with your students in an online environment? That's I think that's a philosophical mm -hmm. choice, and it also comes from our experience as teachers, both online and face to face, um, because the, it's the relationship between the teacher and student that's the most important. But ways to facilitate that with different tool sets. Right. Um, and, and ways to, to enhance different aspects of that through course content itself um, and the student's relationship with the content kind of as a mediator between the faculty and, and the student. That's something that learning designers have access to both from a theoretical basis in their training and from, from being able to see how all this stuff fits together in our own mm -hmm. ecosystem at Penn State um, that adds, a, a, adds a, 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 a pretty important dimension to what we do. I also think that there's, um, I think there's an evolution of the relationship between the instructional designer and the, and the faculty. And that is um, pretty much anything in the online realm, particularly at a large university like Penn State. If it has to do with online, there's a team behind it. There's a team approach. Mm -hmm. And faculty were never, very rarely, when they were coming up and getting their doctoral, you know, getting their, their PhDs and all, faculty were never really rewarded for playing, playing with others. You're, re you're rewarded for being the um, knowledge expert in this particular tiny area of your dissertation. So you're rewarded for working individually. And so I think, I think the, the, very mo the very best and most effective um, online instructors transition from sort of the individual scholar approach to oh this is a team sport and I want to be part of this team and that's where you can really get a lot done in terms of getting a course completed or getting a program completed. Um, I think that's that's improving over the years but you still run into particularly a, a mid-career faculty or a late career faculty who's never had to give over any of their content for any kind of comment by an instructional designer who's not commenting on the content, they're commenting on the presentation of the content, but mm -hmm. it's, still, it's still always a, there's a cultural conflict in there. I think it's less and less, um, but it's, it's still there, and we're, we're evolving out of that. So, so another good segue into my next question, which, which is sort of looking into the future a little bit, and I think that as we've, as we've stated, uh, you know, the technology is rapidly evolving. Our, there's a lot, you know, there, there's all kinds of interesting advances in neuro, neurology and neuroscience that, um, amongst other things, that just help us understand how the brain works and how we learn, and that's translating, hopefully, to some extent into improved teaching practices. Also, education policy, as anybody who lives in probably any country, especially in the United States, knows, is changing pretty quickly in things like funding, how mm -hmm. schools are funded and whatnot. Um, and also the, just the business of online learning is, is evolving. Um, 
given all those things, I've been assuming that you guys are doing a lot of work to help prepare faculty for all those changes. Can you kind of prognosticate a little bit and, and kind of give a glimpse of what you think the future of um, online learning, I guess, particularly looks like um, from your perspective? And then, you know, what are some of the things, the most salient things about that future state that are most most driving what you're thinking the next thing that you do is? Yeah, just a couple things that come to my mind are um, the the balance of the technology and the the different types of learning that are possible with staying true to to um, to accurate and solid pedagogy, right? Because um, at the at the end of the day, that student's relationship in that course is not really with the technology mm-hmm. or with the cool. Oculus thing mm-hmm. that they're wearing. It's with that professor, yeah. and it's with the other students in that in that course. That said, um, I think you know we're paying a lot more attention to the broader issues that are present in an online course. For instance, um, uh, cross cultural awareness mm-hmm. when a primarily white North American instructor is is teaching an online course with people from all over the country and all over the world. Um, there may not be those sensitivities developed, I think, you know, um, as well as kind of sensitivities towards race and class and other issues. Mm-hmm. Those are, we're starting to realize that those are important pieces of faculty development as well, including other types of um, pedagogical practice, like reflective practice and um, ethical practice. So I think that, you know, in terms of, that's not so much the technology driving that, um, but it's this idea that the online learning space is a real space with real human beings showing up. And even though it's distance and asynchronous, the same issues that are in that face-to-face classroom you know, that may be a little bit more apparent because you can see everybody, they're still there. Mm-hmm. And if the, if the number one priority is student retention and student success, we have to have faculty moving beyond, you know, do I have a good discussion question to am I, um, you know, am I biased in any way in this course? Yeah. And, and you know, if you're a student that's coming to Penn State, there's, there's some degree of diversity and in, in, in international sort of presence in that that context, but within world campus, it's literally world campus. Right. Like it, it should be assumed that your the group of students you have in that course are probably from all over the world. And if you're not paying attention to cultural awareness, you're probably yeah. disadvantaging half right. of your students. And we do. Have, I think we do a good job with um, accessibility mm-hmm. and those kinds of issues. Of course, those are legal. Yeah, right. you, yeah. You have to pay attention. Yeah. Uh, you have to recognize an accommodation letter, right, and do all that stuff. Uh, so, so there's this, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the online student can have a very different profile than the, the face-to-face student. I mean, you're dealing with people with all sorts of disabilities, all sorts of issues, you know. Um, so I just think that there's this, this coming to understand that, you know, faculty development really needs to encompass more than just the 
Do you have good online presence? Are you getting back to students within 12 hours or 24 hours? Two, who am I teaching? And more importantly, who am I mm-hmm. teaching them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and I look at sort of the, the future is one side of it is is the, the, the evolving technology itself. Um, AI is the big marketing buzzword, machine learning, natural language processing. When, when there's a convergence of those three elements mm-hmm. in 20 years, maybe sooner, if it's Elon Musk, we'll all be walking around with, I don't know, bio implants or something, yeah. whatever. Um, so so as, as those things continue to evolve, you can hear the language from Silicon Valley, which is still very utopia-based. It's almost religious. Mm-hmm. It, um, it is religious from a scholar's point of view, the language they use. That, that this will solve all of our problems. Well, in, in the history of humankind, these things, just as mm-hmm. I said with teaching, it reveals our problems. Yeah. It might not solve them. It might solve a few. Um, we can cure a lot of diseases now that we were never able to, but then we start to create other problems as a result of some of these interventions yeah. into human life. So I, I think that this, this idea that our technology is going to solve our problems and make our life easier in education can be easily misdirected if, um, if we don't have an ethical foundation and a philosophical foundation guiding our decisions. There's been enough work these days done on, on algorithms that were designed 30 years ago that, that have bias ingrained in the code itself. There's bias in these codes that we're just replicating without interrogating what, what's actually happening. And if we continue down that path, we're going to continue to see bad outcomes and wonder what went, what went wrong. Yeah. Um, so I, I think interrogating, it's just like what I teach, what I, what I try to help faculty understand is be intentional and mindful of what you're doing in your course and, un, and have an argument that's, that's, that has a philosophical basis of some kind so that if your student asks you, why are we doing this? You'll be able to tell them in a rational way and, mm-hmm. and have a debate with them if you need to. Have, allow your students to participate in that process. Don't make it um, opaque and hidden to them. It's in the same way we need to interrogate the technologies that we're bringing into our environment at every single turn. You know, it's it's not just a call for proposals. This is a call for an environmental change that should be ethically grounded. And as privatized companies that are trying to make money off of universities, that are trying to extract the value from our institutions and our tuition dollars and our state appropriations, and put them in, into their into their shareholders' pockets. We need to understand what what are we selling to them yeah. in that process. So that's the technology is is sort of like, and, and how that progresses and what we're inviting into our institutions. That's that's kind of one thing. The other side of that is probably related to it, and that's that the faculty labor crisis, which is a labor crisis, and that is that the proliferation of the part-time faculty member who has no benefits who's getting a really crappy salary to teach a whole lot of students, and they're becoming the backbone of the teaching enterprise at institutions. And it's a question that we continually ask ourselves, how are we making lives better and and helping the teaching practice of these part-time faculty who have a very low commitment to the institution, who might be teaching for several institutions, just trying to make enough money to put food on the table, pay rent, pay insurance, and make sure their kids don't get sick and die. I mean, right. literally, yeah, that's that's sure. where they are. Um, and how can we help make that process better? I think transformations in our um, promotion process as far as teaching and rank for teaching professors, that definitely helps. But, um, but there's still a tendency that if you're not unionized already, then you're going to have a really hard time forming a faculty union 
but you don't have enough representation for faculty who are part-time. And units like, I mean, we got four people and we kind of stand in the gap, right? We kind of advocate for faculty at the same time holding them accountable for our students. And it's a weird position to be in. It's a fairly new position, I think. And it's something that I think will continue to evolve. And we can't also at the same time think that technology and algorithms and data processing and more analytics is going to solve these problems because you still need yeah. people with, with philosophies and ethical positions to make sense of that information or it's noise. Yeah, it, it, that's really refreshing to hear and actually it reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, I believe it was in Newark where and, and Cory Booker, mm. who was, a, I, think, I think he was, if I'm getting the he person right, was the mayor of Newark mm -hmm. and he brought and somehow lobbied uh, Zuckerberg mm -hmm. to come to come in and create this new school, and they got like a hundred million dollars like to build Facebook this high thing. School. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and he dumped all this money in, and Zuckerberg's philosophy—I forget what exactly—it's something like break things and something, break things in code or something like that. And so his philosophy was to just come in and just ignore all the teachers essentially, and just rip the whole thing apart. Assume that it was. The way we've been doing things is a failure and just rip things apart and put all these administrators in that we're going to, and these smart Silicon Valley type people to just rebuild the thing from this, from scratch and basically completely failed. Mm -hmm. and, and I was listening to some interviews by some of the teachers and they were like, look, give, take that money, hire better teachers or pay these teachers better. Um, we need really basic basic supplies in our classroom so we can do hands-on activities with our students like i just need more time to know these to do these things like we already know the learning theory like just give me an opportunity to be successful with the things that we know and it doesn't have to do with any of this yeah technology this, it's like, right and this is part of this is part of sort of the business of higher ed at least and you know you were talking about k-12 but this idea of you know if you're going to have twenty thousand students um fully online at World Campus, for instance, mm -hmm. um, you're not going to have that one incredibly cool classroom, a digital classroom, with all the technology to bear, experimental, um, student-driven, collaborative learning. That's all great learning. In some ways, that's the better type of learning, mm -hmm. but you can't scale that up, or at least we've not, we've, you probably could scale it up, but you, we've not had the resources to scale it up. So. You know, in a, in a university setting, um, both the face-to-face -face classrooms um, with lots of students packed in them or the online classrooms, you know, you're sort of, you're sort of constructing like a Ford Focus. Find car, get you where it needs to go. You're not making a Tesla, you know. And, it ju and ju Teslas are now just beginning to be, you know, mass-produced, yeah. you know. So I think it's this idea of... Technology is fantastic and it's wonderful and it's you know it's pushing our boundaries and it you know were it to were it to be fully in bloom it would completely change the way we think about how we teach and how we learn and what's happening in our cognitively that's that's different than than traditional teaching um, but at least in the university setting uh, that stuff and you. I can't imagine particularly because this is sort of your domain. That stuff has to be sort of, you know, kind of controlled and balanced with, we've got to create, you know, 10 courses for this program. Right. And now we got to, you know, do another, you know, 120 credits over here. 
and you just can't incorporate all that stuff. So right. we're, you know, as we think about faculty development and what we, what we want online instructors to do, particularly somebody who's never taught online before, what we, are, what we understand is they're coming into courses that are fairly well made, they're fairly well designed ahead of time. Let's just get this quality up as high as we can there mm-hmm. um, and not introduce them to a ton of technology that one, they may not be able to learn, and two, they may not be able to use because it won't be present in that course. Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of this tension of technology getting out ahead of the institutional and financial structures that make classrooms look the way they look in a university. Yeah, it was something in something like a metaphor that I use for faculty when whenever they see the next shiny object on the horizon, boy, I'd love to bring that tool into my course. It's like, okay, let's let's just for a second say that you brought that tool in, you changed a lesson. Now students have to learn how to use the tool in order to perform the lesson effectively. So they need to learn a different set of skills just to learn the tool, just like by the way with a group assignment. You can't just expect students Oh, they know how to do group work. No, they don't. They have no mm-hmm. clue how to do group work. You have to teach them how to do the process to do the learning outcomes. Let's just put that into a face-to-face classroom. Let's say that the students get to the, get to the room. There's a note on the door that says, oh, you need to go to this classroom today because we changed the room. So they go to the new room. It has a completely different setup. They don't know where yeah. to sit. They don't know um, what to do. They have these computers sitting in front of them, these brand new tools, and nobody knows what to do. So what do you do? You spend the next half an hour to 45 minutes teaching them about the environment and how to manipulate the tools. Sure. No real learning happens other than being familiarizing them with the environment because they're totally it's, it's a totally foreign space to them. So when if you're doing something online and you're introducing this new tool, that use that as a metaphor. You know, you have to understand what some of the negative and disruptive consequences are for bringing in a new tool and how that will transform the environment and how you're going to prepare students and scaffold that so that you can, again, f- let's focus. We're here to, to learn specific disciplinary competencies so that you can be successful in this particular area in this course. Um, not necessarily, in, in many cases, to learn how to use this particular tool. Now, in some disciplines, like I'm thinking of nursing, mm-hmm. um, or, or architecture, the tool is part of that set sure. of competencies, right? Sure. But but in, in an English course, maybe it's not. Right. It's so just a cool doing. thing, yeah. right? And so that that's why I, I think helping faculty be re- reflective and intentional about everything they're doing is is part of this process. So that so that it's it's not just bringing in you know that the buzzword is always the shiny object, right? Yeah. It's not just bringing that in. That might be fine. You might be a bleeding edge kind of person who's like, let's bring this new tool in. Let's mess up the system. Let's be disruptive. That's great. Yeah. Um, but but if you're not used to that and that's not part of your philosophy, that's not the way you live your life as a human being. And, and you like to sit back, let things develop before you start integrating these things and using these tools. Don't do anything different in your classroom that you do with with um, with your family, for instance. Um, don't change your personality just because you're now a teacher with, with these students. Don't disrupt your own tendencies that you're comfortable with just to do this with your students. Um, don't be a different person with your students than you would face-to-face yeah. as you are online. You know, be, be careful of those things and understand and be mindful of, of yeah. how your behaviors are affecting other people because your students will know. They'll see when things aren't authentic. They'll see when you fall flat on your face for no given purpose, and, and they'll hold you accountable for it one way or another. Yeah, and we're not... We're, none of us are Luddites. 
I mean, no, it, no. I mean, we understand the value, and I'm th- and I think like you mentioned the Oculus. I think a lot about virtual reality primarily because like nursing for for, for an mm-hmm. example, we've got online nursing students who go through these programs and they don't have a lot of opportunity to go into like in the in the resident nursing program they have um, a nursing simulation lab where they get hands-on with dummies that have Mm -hmm. all kinds of cool technology in them and the online students don't get access to that so could we use virtual reality to right you know to to actually transform the way nursing is, is taught online so that in that case that that is a shiny new technology for sure but, but it has the way an, that I think about it is it's it's clearly yeah it is a clear the only way to do this the best way. Yeah. But un, but underneath all of that there I mean the 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 philosophy of why that would fit mm-hmm. and why that's appropriate is not because it's a really necessarily it's a really good match of technology but you know one of the things that's that drives I think really high quality online course design is this idea of equivalency mm-hmm. right. So online and face-to-face are not supposed to be better or worse than each other. They're supposed to be equivalent. So in a case for the nursing student, is the Oculus going to achieve equivalency mm-hmm. to the face-to-face sure. nurse? And if it can, then, that, then that's the philosophical argument and reason for mm-hmm. introducing that technology. Yeah, and if you can't clearly look at that equivalency and make that yeah. case, then you should really think a little bit more about right. what you're doing. Yeah. Right. And there are some places where I think online is far better than, than a, a traditional mm-hmm. residential environment. I, I think of something like um, if, if you're doing an environmental science course and, and you're doing something on ecosystems. If you have somebody in Arizona, somebody in the Pacific Northwest, somebody in the Northeast, and somebody around the Gulf area, and their job is to pick, a, pick an ecosystem and to photograph that and then explain what's going on there for, for some some set of objectives related to, it could be land erosion, um, different things like that. Um, there's a different set of biodiversity that they can get up close and take pictures to and share that with their with the rest of their classmates where if you're in a residential where everybody's at University Park and everybody goes out to Rothrock, well, that's not very interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, look, there's another picture of the same tree that I just saw. Literally, <laughs> I took the same picture yeah. of that particular tree. So, so there are things with geographical dispersion, right. different time zones, in different cultures that can interact in ways that you can't possibly do the same way in, in a face-to-face situation. And, and any time that faculty can, because can, I've seen them design lessons like that online, it's like, wow, that's really cool because you're dealing with different pockets of society, different people groups, different subcultures that, that people who are in the same locale don't have access to. But online, you can show them a little bit of that. Yeah. Well, I, um, I appreciate all the work that you guys do to help us figure out these really tricky problems that are constantly evolving so so thank you so much for your time and uh have a great day you too thanks good (laughs) conversation